Good morning, church. Can you hear me? Okay. I'm not sure, but you might already realize from that first few sentences, I sound different from most of you. Okay, and that's because I'm from Singapore, so that's the little dot on the other side of the world. So now I work for Creation Ministries, and I work for the U.S. office. We are an international ministry, and we exist in seven countries around the world. So Creation Ministries, as far as I'm aware, we actually employ more PhD scientists than any other Christian ministry around. And Creation Ministries, um, every year we go to churches like this, give over 1,000 talks about creation, evolution, and so on. So like I say now, I'm from Singapore, I live in Georgia, that's where our office is. It's in Powder Springs, so not too far from here. And that's my family. Oops, there you see that. All right, so, yeah. So creation ministries, what are we about? I like to say that we are an information ministry. So what do I mean by that? I like to phrase it this way. So how many of us have ever had questions like this? Have you ever wondered, has science proven millions of years and evolution to be fact? What about this? Is there evidence of a worldwide flood? And don't the fossils prove millions of years? Did God use evolution and millions of years to create? And the big one, right? If God's a God of love, why is there so much death and suffering? Can I have a show of hands if at some point in time in your life you ever had questions like that? Okay, do me a favor, leave your hands up there. Okay, just take a quick look around us, okay? Hands down. There's almost like 95% of us. I think most of us, at some point in our time in our life, we have questions like that. And that's what I mean when I say that we are an information ministry. We provide answers that almost every single one of us have about these questions. And we have a website, creation.com. And on this website, we have more than 40 years of research about creation evolution, 15,000 articles. So if you have a question, go to creation.com, type it into the search bar. It's very likely there will be a reply waiting for you. Okay, so that's what we are about, creation.com. So Creation Ministries, before I start, I would like to introduce a free email newsletter. So this is just something that we send out to our supporters once a week. We do not sell your information, we do not spam you. So what's that for? Well, imagine you get home from work or from school, and your neighbor comes up to you, right, and shows you a newspaper, it says the latest ape man has been found. You say, how do you answer that? If you're part of this email newsletter, it's very likely that at the end of the week, there will be a reply waiting for you. Just forward our email to your friends, and you can use that as a stepping stone to share the gospel with them. So if you're interested in that, we just need your name and your email address. When we get to the office, we'll put that into a database. You can download um, this DVD that you see here. Watch that at your own free time. Use this as a stepping stone to share the gospel with your friends. See, we are all about equipping, all about evangelism. So that's what we need, your name and your email address. So volunteers, if you want, you can hand out the sign-up sheets. So as you're doing that, let me get into my presentation. So if you notice, one of the degrees I have is a degree in evolutionary biology. And when people hear that, they always ask me, why would a Christian study evolution? You see, I did my science degrees when I was in Australia. So I was there for four years. So that's the street of Brisbane. And for those four years, every weekend, I would either volunteer with Creation Ministries as a helper, or I would be doing open-air preaching from 9 p.m. to midnight every Saturday as far as I was able to. And for those four years, I was there on the streets, 
trying to preach the gospel, as far as I can remember, almost every single week, I would have at least one person asking me a question about creation and evolution. And I'm convinced that this is the biggest intellectual excuse for why many people are not willing to consider as the Word of God. See, at the end of the day, why are we speaking about creation and evolution today? It boils down to this question. Can we trust God's Word? See, if the Bible gets it wrong in Genesis, why trust the rest of the Bible? Right? If what it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, if we cannot trust that, why trust what he has to say about the gospel, about the future resurrection, and so on? It boils down to the authority of God's word. See, many times it's like this boy, he goes to school, and what does he learn? Does he learn about creation or evolution? Evolution, or he learns about millions of years and all that. But that's essentially the same thing, and that's all he ever hears. And his good friend Johnny, Johnny tries to preach the gospel, Johnny said, hey, look, Jesus died for sinners. The Bible says so. And his friend turned around and said, oh, come on, the Bible isn't true. I mean, hasn't science proven evolution? Oops, how do I go back? Okay, skip one slide there. Hasn't science proven evolution? Where do dinosaurs fit in the Bible? Don't the fossils take millions of years to form? And is the Bible wrong on science? Okay, the same type of questions where almost every single one of us raised our hands early on. And his friend turned around. He said, I don't know. Do you think Johnny's witnessing is going to be effective? No, right? But it's worse than that because now Johnny, he has all these questions. So who does he ask? Mom, dad, can you answer these questions? And does he get any answers? See, sometimes you get very sad testimonies like this. And here you actually have a college chaplain and says this. He says, this constant brainwashing, he's talking about the idea of evolution and millions of years. This constant brainwashing destroys the faith of many Christians each year. Our surveys indicate that 80% of first-year students believe in a God who is there. By the second year, only 15% believe in God. Okay, this survey is in Australia. But in the United States, major denominations have done similar surveys coming to the same conclusion. So for example here, oops, let's see if we can get that. George Barnard tells us that 64% of kids who grew up in church, when they get to college, they leave the church never to return. These are all kids with a church background. And you see, they do not just begin to doubt the gospel when they get to college. These doubts were already in their minds all these years. But college is where they get their freedom, and that's where they leave the church. Here's another one. Southern Baptist Convention tells us 88% of kids who grew up in church, they leave the church never to return. Lifeway survey is 70%. Assembly of God, 66%. And older George Barnard survey, 61%. What figure is acceptable? You see, when you see things like this, that two in three kids who grew up in church, they leave the church never to return, we need to ask another question. Why? What's the reason? Yes, I understand you need to preach the gospel. Yes, the Holy Spirit has to convict a person and all that. But evangelism doesn't work in a vacuum. If you ask a person for the reasons for why they do not believe the Bible is the Word of God, do you know what excuse they always give? Well, a couple of years ago, we went to the colleges in the States and we did a survey. We called that a fallout project. And so what we did was we interviewed hundreds of students and we all asked them this question. Did you grow up in church? Do you have a church background? If they say no, we leave them aside. You see, we just wanted to look at kids who grew up in church. And so to all these kids with a church background, we asked a second question. 
we ask them, have you, do you believe in creation or evolution? The vast majority said evolution. And to this group that believe in evolution, we ask the third question. Have you ever been shown how science supports the Bible? Every single one said no. And the final question, do you still attend church? And every single one of these kids who grew up in church but now believe in evolution and were never taught to defend the faith, every single one of them no longer, uh, sorry, except for one guy, no longer attends church. And then we went to the group that believe in creation. The same question, have you ever been shown how science supports the Bible? Everyone said yes. Do you still attend church? And every single one of them said yes. And before us, we saw that the biggest intellectual excuse, is an excuse, right, for why they give for not believing the Bible as the word of God, boils down to this whole issue of creation and evolution. Because like I say, at the end of the day, it boils down to the authority of God's word. Can we believe what the Bible says? Here's another one. Another study tells us that the two biggest reasons that millennials give for, for not believing the Bible, number one, science refutes the Bible. By science, they're actually talking about the idea of evolution and millions of years. Second biggest reason, they refuse to believe in fairy tales, miracles, creation, and things like that. But one and two, these two is essentially the same thing. Both boils down to what it says in the Word of God. This is not a side issue. So people say, okay, if, if this is such a controversial issue, why don't we just say that God, God used evolution? I mean, doesn't that solve the issue? No, it doesn't. Well, who has heard of biologos here? Anybody? <coughs> so what's biologos? Biologos is an organization that provides funding, millions of dollars, to Bible colleges and churches if these seminaries and Bible colleges will teach evolution. Okay, they believe that if you teach evolution and say God used evolution, you know, this four-way rate will not happen. And of course, Biologos is actually um, founded by Francis Collins, right? You guys know popular name, right? So Francis Collins was the founder of this organization. But Carl Gibson, he's a, a science professor as well. He teaches in Bible colleges, seminaries. And he was the former vice president of Biologos. I want you to see what he says after teaching his students evolution. So these are Bible college students. Instead, scientifically informed young evangelicals. These are, he's talking about Bible college students he's teaching evolution too. Instead, scientifically informed young evangelicals became so alienated from their home churches that they walk away, taking their enlightenment with them. Most of my most talented st former students no longer attend any church. And some of them have completely abandoned their faith traditions. You see, it doesn't work. You tell these kids, these Bible college students, that God used evolution, what do you think that would do? What, that, what would that do to the zeal to preach the gospel? It doesn't work. Another group of people say, yes, the Bible teaches creation. I believe the Bible. And they say, that's wonderful. Why? Because the Bible has to be our foundation, the Word of God. But yes, you believe the Bible, but you don't stop there. Because the Bible tells us if you want to be a faithful Christian, yes, believe the Word of God. But you also make the commitment to train yourself so that you can reach out to your friends and families. Train yourself to tear down worldviews, arguments, and every lofty opinion that raises itself against the knowledge of God. And to take every thought captive to obey Christ. See, when you come to church, you do not leave your brains at the door. Yes, to believe the Word of God, but you train yourself to be able to defend the faith. 
See, I love science here. Who loves science here? Okay, so I love science. So here's a quiz for you. Who has more evidence, creation or evolution? Who says creation? Okay, evolution? The same? Okay, I don't know. Okay, let me try to rephrase that question and you'll see where I'm going with that. So here my hands, I have a fossil clam. Okay, two scientists, one creationist, one evolutionist, when they're looking at this fossil before your very eyes, are they looking at the same fossil or different fossil? The same. Two astronomers looking at a star, are they looking at the same star or different star? So let me ask you that question again. Who has more evidence? Who has more scientific data, creation or evolution? It's the same. We have the same fossils. See, the reason we come to a different conclusion is not because we have different signs. The reason we come to a different conclusion is because we have a different starting worldview, and the worldview is what interprets the evidence coming to a different conclusion. See, this fossil doesn't come from a label that says 65 million years ago. It's a worldview that looks at that, bringing us to a different conclusion. You see, when I speak about science, what comes to mind? For a lot of people, if you're like me, the first picture that comes to mind, you think of technology, right? Think of laptops, airplanes, projectors. But we get these things from what we call operational science or experimental science. So what's operational science or what's experimental science? Well, operational science is science that's in the present, it's science that's observable, science that's repeatable, science that is testable. And operational science or experimental science is what gives us the technology that we see today. So to show you what I mean, here's a little ball. If I were to let this ball drop, what do you think will happen? Will it fly up or fly down? It goes down, right? So if you do not believe me, you can always do an experiment. Just do it over and over again. And that is what we call experimental science. And experimental science or operational science is what gives us the, the technology that we see today. It's repeatable. See, experiments allow us to remove a lot of explanations that are not consistent with reality. But when we're addressing creation evolution, we're dealing with a different type of science. We're dealing with what we call historical science. And historical science is different because it's not in the present, it's not observable, not repeatable, and not testable. You see, I grew up in Singapore. And during World War II, Singapore, we were under the Japanese occupation. So I wasn't alive back then. So if I want to find out what life was like under the Japanese, what can I do? I can go online, do a Google search, go to a library. Or I used to speak to my grandmother, and she used to tell me first-hand accounts of what life was like under the Japanese. But you see, all I can, what I cannot do is I cannot travel back in time and carry out an experiment back in time. All I can do is take bits and pieces of information in the present and try to piece together a story of what life was like back then. And because I don't have the benefits of experiments to read out ideas that may not be consistent with reality, it's going to be far more subjective. And my worldview will play a bigger role in the way I interpret the evidence. The same piece of evidence, someone in Japan might look at that coming to a different conclusion. So earlier this year, I was listening to um, a lecture by a professor. And he described how he went into this um, museum in Japan. It's a World War II museum. And you have all these books open up describing the very same event. Books in Japanese, in Korean, in English, in Chinese, English from different countries. 
But every single one of them described this event completely differently. Everyone interpreted the event based on their different nationalistic tendencies. Why is that? Because with historical science, it's far more subjective. Your worldview will play a bigger role in the way you look at the evidence. And that's why historians disagree among themselves all the time. So keep this in mind. Okay, historical science is going to be far more subjective because of the nature of the way it's presented. You know, skeptics, they come along and say, you creationists, you come out with this categorization, operational science, historical science, because you do not want to say that evolution is science, right? But is that true? Let's look at what this, one of the leading experts in the last century, he's an evolutionist, right? Leading evolutionist. Look at what he says in this article. For example, Darwin introduced historicity into science. Evolutionary biology, in contrast with physics and chemistry, is what? A historical science. The evolutionist attempts to explain events and processes that have already taken place. Laws and experiments are inappropriate techniques for the explication of such events and processes. Instead, one constructs a historical narrative, a story, consisting of a tentative reconstruction of the particular scenario that, lead, that led to the events one is trying to explain. Okay, a lot of big words here. But what he's saying here is exactly the same thing that I said earlier on. Okay, this is something that philosophers of science recognize. It's not something that just creationists decide to come up with. So why is this important when we talk about creation and evolution? Maybe next, this next illustration might help, okay? So we all love quiz, right? So here's a question for you. Let's try something fun. What's missing and how did this look like originally? A, oops, oh, you jump backwards. A, B, C, oops, A, B, C, or D? Okay, you make your choice. Who thinks the original picture is A? B? C? A few happy faces here. D? Okay, most Ds. Do you want to know the answer? Nothing is missing. You see, I tricked you. But that's my point, isn't it? Why did you think something was missing? I asked you a leading question. I suggested to you something was missing. See, what I did was actually gave you a worldview. I told you something was missing, and with that in mind, you look at A, B, C, and D, and all four options are entirely consistent with the two lines. But because you had the wrong starting assumption, you interpret the, four, the evidence differently coming to the wrong conclusion. Imagine now, before I show you A, B, C, and D, I said to you, consider the possibility that nothing is missing. Okay, if I said that to you and then show you the four options again, would you maybe have chosen something different? See, everything's the same. So why is it that you're likely to choose something different now? It's the worldview that looks at the evidence, bringing you to a different conclusion. So in the same way, you know, circular geologists, they look at the rock layers out there, and what do they see? Rock layers with fossils in there, evidence of death and disease. In the fossil record, we see evidence of fossil thorns and thistles. They say, hey, look, there's evidence of millions of years of evolution, death and disease. But may I encourage you to start with the Word of God. Train yourself to start with God's Word and use that as a worldview to look at the signs around you. And then those same rock layers with the fossils actually make much more sense with the Bible. 
it becomes good evidence of what the Bible says about a recent creation. No death before fall, no flood, and things like that. So how many of you have been to the Grand Canyon here? Some of you? Well, most of you here. So I'm sure you have all... Oops, why does this keep jumping backwards? Okay. So I'm sure you have all seen pictures like this. You see all the rock layers there and the millions of years there? No, wait a minute. What did I just say? When you hear something like that, take a step back. Ask yourself, what's the evidence? What's the interpretation? The evidence is that's rock layers. Rocks laid down by water, sedimentary rocks, and in those rocks we find fossils. What's the interpretation? Millions of years. You can learn to separate that out in your mind. And yes, we do find fossils in the rock layers there. We find marine fossils like clams and fish. But it's not just in the Grand Canyon. Because most mountain ranges in the world, even the top of Mount Everest, is actually covered with marine fossils, like clam, clams, shellfish, and things like that. In fact, this too is on the fossil display at the back. So I have a book table there with a fossil display. Come and check this out for yourself. The top of Mount Everest is actually covered with marine fossils. Evolutionists, they agree. You know, they say yeah, Mount Everest was once under the ocean, and over millions of years, it's slowly being pushed up. And that's why we see the fossils there today. But when you start the Bible, can you think of an event in the Bible that will explain why we see these things at the top of Mount Everest? What would that be? The flood, the worldwide flood, right? The Bible tells us, um, oops, jumping again. Okay, let's go back. The Bible tells us in Psalms 104, hmm, in Psalms 104, that after the flood, so this is when the rock lays are still very soft, right? Very quickly, the mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place you appointed for them. So in a short period of time after the flood, when the rock lays are still soft, and that's why we see fossil clams and fish at the top of Mount Everest. Two different explanations because we have two different starting worldviews. So we have the same evidence. But I always believe that when you start with the Word of God, you know, everything begins to make much more sense because we're starting with the correct worldview. See, why do I say that? Who here likes to eat shellfish? Anybody? Okay, clams, oysters. If you've been to the seaside, you know that within a few days, the top half separates from the bottom half. Right? So how then do you explain that the vast majority of fossil clams are all in a closed position? Is this a shellfish or clams that is waiting for millions of years to be buried? Or does this tell you catastrophe, rapid burial, something they went through the area so quickly that these clams are forever stuck in a closed position. You see, when you see something like that, that's not millions of years. That should tell you that's catastrophe, worldwide catastrophe that caused these fossils all over the world. Start with the Word of God. You know, the evidence will make much more sense. Here's more shellfish. Look at that. It's like this cartoon say, clam therapy, I wasn't even dead yet. It happened so suddenly. It happened to my entire family. I couldn't even open up. You see, friends, when you look at a fossil, think of rapid catastrophe and burial. Think of the worldwide flood. See, the Bible says that there was a worldwide flood, but it's not only in the Old Testament. The New Testament mentions this as well. In 2 Peter, it says this, Knowing this, oops, knowing this, first of all, the scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own evil desires. So what are, oops, what are scoffers? Oh, why is it jumping? Okay. So what are scoffers? 
unbelievers, people, they come, they mock the Bible, right? And what does it say? They will say, where's the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. It's always been that way. There's no catastrophe, no flood, right? And it continues. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of this, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perish. Second Peter. Peter tells us that in the last days, scoffers will come along and one of the characteristics is that they will deny the worldwide flood. But notice what it says. They deliberately overlook. What does that mean? If you have to deliberately evidence of the flood, that means that with the right starting worldview, you should be able to see evidence of the flood all around us. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. See, when I say that God created the world in six days, about 6,000 years ago, people turn around and say, oh, come on, why, why do you have to believe that God created in six days? I mean, doesn't it say that a day is a thousand years? Who has heard of that? So how do you answer that? Well, first of all, that passage doesn't say a day is a thousand years. Say a day is as a thousand years. Okay? But where do we get that passage from? That passage is just a few verses after this. Two verses after this passage that you see. This is the passage. Say, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And then they stop there. I say, read the rest of the verse. It say, a thousand years is as one day. You're back to square one. See, this passage is not talking about creation days at all. See, they want to stretch the day to a thousand years, but they'll never try to compress the six days to less than that, right? They're not being consistent here. So what is this passage talking about? It continues, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This passage is not talking about creation days. It's talking about the patience of God, that God is not willing that any of his people perish, but that all of them should come to repentance. Notice something? This passage? This is not God's time. Do you know why? God is outside of time. There's no such thing as God's time. God's outside of time. He created time. And in Genesis, it says that, let there be light, there was light. So you have light, you have a rotating earth, evening and morning, one day, right? What's that? That's time on earth. That's man's time. See, this passage is not talking about creation days. It's talking about the patience of God. It's a warning, really. A warning against what? Do you remember the context, what we just read two verses before this? Do not overlook. Okay. So two verses before that we just read, that this is a warning against those who deny the worldwide flood. So a day is uh, as a thousand years? That is not an excuse to put millions of years in the Bible. That is a warning against those who reject what the Bible says. So how then do we explain all the rock layers that we saw earlier on? Well, let's look at one of my favorite volcanoes. So that's Mount St. Helens. So who was around when Mount St. Helens erupted? Okay, so now I know your age. Okay, something interesting about Mount St. Helens, it's missing its sight, and that's because it blew its sight. See, when Mount St. Helens erupted, we saw many interesting geological processes forming in a short period of time. So here you have a person for scale at the bottom. 
And this entire cliff is a record of three separate events, each taking less than a single day. So when the volcano erupted, this entire first, oops, this entire first layer was laid down in just one day. And then one month later, it blew its side, and hot ash and debris ran down the mountainside. And the entire second layer was laid down in just three hours. Three hours. Let us zoom into this second layer. Do you see that? You see all the microlaminations there? The circular geology textbooks will tell you when you see a rock layer, all these layers, each layer must have taken one year to form, right? So if we did not see this happening, they would have concluded that this must have been a record of tens of thousands of years. But operational science, when Mount St. Helens blew its side, we saw this entire second layer being laid down in just three hours. See, when you have a catastrophe, these things can happen very quickly. Friends, this is just from a tiny volcano in one single day. Can you imagine what the Bible says, a worldwide flood, which by the way is not 40 days. If you look in the Bible, the whole flood actually lasts about one year long. What would such a global flood do all over the world? Now, of course, later on, there was a mud, flew that ran, a mud flow that ran through the area, and the top layer was laid down in one single day. Okay, so you say to me, okay, maybe if you have a worldwide flood, you know, we get all these rock layers forming quickly. But I've been to the Grand Canyon. You know, there's the Colorado River that runs through that. Look at the high sides. That must have taken millions of years to cover up the canyon. Does it? The first thing you need to note is that the Colorado River actually runs the opposite gradient of the land. So how do you get something like that forming? Well, let's get back to Mount St. Helens. Remember the top layer? There was a mud flow that ran through the area. Can that, that mud flow actually cover an entire canyon in one single day? And that canyon is known as Little Grand Canyon. Why do you think it was given that nickname? Because Little Grand Canyon is one fortieth the size of the Grand Canyon in one day from a small little volcano. This is Little Grand Canyon. Do you see the same high sites there? And see the stream that runs through that? Did this river or stream take millions of years to cover up this canyon? No. The river was what was left after the catastrophe. Do you see how changing your starting worldview changes the way you look at some of these things? The Little Grand Canyon is one of out of four to six different canyons that was covered out as a result of the events that took place at Mount St. Helens. Some of these canyons are massive. Like in this case, this canyon was carved out not through soft volcanic ash, but through hard volcanic igneous rocks. It's being scratched out. You can see the striations in the rock there. Entire canyons carved out in a short period of time because you have lots of water and catastrophic processes going on. Okay, so you say to me, okay, so maybe you have a worldwide flood. I grant it to you. You have rock layers forming, you have canyons forming quickly. But Earlier on, you said that those rock layers contain what? Fossils. And everybody knows that fossils take millions of years to form. Well, how does a fossil form? If you go to a museum, this is what they will tell you. So dinosaur dies, it sinks to the bottom of the ocean, and over millions of years, it's slowly being buried. And that's the rock layers that you see there, right? And one day, due to erosion, the bones are exposed. And that's how you get for yourself a fossil. Can you get a fossil forming that way, a well-preserved fossil? We've all seen documentaries of the ocean floor. Maybe some of you have gone diving or scuba diving. 
Is the ocean floor covered with millions of fish waiting to be buried? No. Why not? It decays away, it rots away. Okay, if you do not believe me, do a simple experiment for yourself. So here we have fed the fish, okay? And when no one's looking, take a few drops of cyanide. <laughs> Poor Freddy, right? If this happened in the ocean, what would you expect to see? See, you begin to bloat and float, and after a few days, you float to the top. And then small fish come along, when nibble at that, scrapes fall to the bottom. Lobsters, scavengers come along. Within a few weeks, nothing is left. So how then can you get a well-preserved fossil? It doesn't work. See, forensic scientists have actually done experiments. And here, what they did, they took a freshly killed pig, and they placed this pig in deep water, low water, low oxygen waters. See, they just, you do not expect this to decay that quickly. See, the scientists wanted to see what small marine scavengers, like shrimps and, lobst and lobsters and things like that, would do to a pig like this. So what you can see, these two things here, these are the ropes, they tie it down so it will not float away, and then they put a big cage so that big fish and sharks will not eat that. They're just going to look at what small marine scavengers, like I say, lobsters and shrimps, would do to a pig like this. The next picture, this same pig seven days later. Do you notice that? Notice how scattered the bones are? They don't fall in a nice position. This is just from lobsters and small marine scavengers. They're scattered about. We call that disarticulated. The bones are disarticulated. This is just seven days. So how then do you explain that in the fossil record, we have very well-preserved fossils, like this huge marine reptile? Look at that. Notice how the bones are all intact. They're not disarticulated. They're not scattered about. Is this a fossil waiting for millions of years to be buried? In fact, this marine fossil is so well-preserved that we can even know that it's female. And the reason we know it's female, it's giving birth. I know some of you ladies here, your stories of long labor. Did that take a million years? That should tell you, when you see something like that, that's catastrophe. Something that went through so quickly, the massive creatures like that are forever preserved in its place. We talk about that in Creation Magazine. So this is a quarterly magazine that we produce. I'll talk about this towards the end of the talk. But do you think you can take something like that, buried birth, go to your kids and say, hey, look, you start the Word of God, start with the worldwide flood, all these things begin to make much more sense. Train them to start with the Word of God and look at the world around us. So how then do we get a well-preserved fossil? Like I say, the worldwide flood. So here we have Freddy the fish swimming along, and the Bible tells us that when the flood started, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. So if all this water from the sea is coming onto the land, worldwide earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanic activities, so tsunamis going all around the seas, around the land. So Freddy the fish swimming along, and oh no, He's buried, oops, why is this always jumping? He's buried, right? And given lots of water and rich minerals, and that's the key, lots of water and rich minerals, rapid barrier, and a short period of time, you get for yourself a very well intact fossil. So fossils, well intact fossils, only make sense in light of catastrophe. And that's how we get a fossil like this. This fish was buried before it could finish its breakfast. How long do fish take to eat? Not millions of years. But doesn't the fossilization process itself take millions of years? Well, not really. 
So what you're looking at here is a teddy bear. And this teddy bear was turned into stone in just three to five months. All they do is they put it under a spring and let the mineralized water, which minerals, lots of water, like what I say, what you would expect in flood conditions. And these things form very quickly. So I have a teddy bear here, which I'll put on the fossil display at the back with the books. And that's this teddy bear I have here from the very same spring here, three to five months. That's the teddy bear you see on the right. And on the left, you can see how they do it. I'm not sure if you can see that from the back, but all these small little things, these are the teddy bears. You see that? They let the spring water drip on it. In three to five months, the whole thing becomes completely encased in stone. All right? And by the way, in case you're wondering, that's not a real human head. You see, in the 1800s, Scientific America actually had an article about this very same spring. And in those days, they would try to preserve all kinds of carcasses. So cats, dogs, birds, fox. You know, at the bottom, you can see a lobster here. At the bottom, it reads about how, in one case, a cat was so completely petrified that we broke off his head. No organic material was left. The whole thing had turned into stone. Again, the key, time and time again, rich mineral, water, and short period of time. Here's another one. And this again is on the fossil display. This is a paper rose made in the Czech Republic. So that's paper or cardboard, and that's a metal wire here. How long do you think it took to petrify this? Two weeks. Just two weeks. And I have a teddy bear in my, in my office in Georgia as well. If you visit us in a Powder Springs office, drop by my office, I'll show you this bear there. From the same spring, just two weeks to form. In fact, this bear here is actually more petrified than the vast majority of dinosaur bones that you actually find in the field. So I love fossils because I think they provide good evidence of the worldwide flood. But what's my favorite fossil? Do you want to know? It's this, polystrate fossils. Or in some national parks, they call that petrified forest. Anyone see a petrified forest? Okay, so what's that? So that's what you're looking at here. You see all these rock layers that they say represents vast periods of time? And you have a tree trunk that runs through that. Notice something. The circular explanation is that these trees must have been growing in place. But it doesn't make sense because that is wood. If this is swampy areas like what they're saying, then these tree trunks should have rotted away. But if you notice, many of them do not have any leaves. Many of them do not have much roots. Sometimes you get a small root ball, but that's about it. You don't have the massive root mass. Most of the time, like here, no roots, no leaves, no bark. They just run through all these rock layers. And this is what it looks like in the fossil record. By the way, some of these formations, they are massive, all right? Huge areas, really deep sedimentation. And they all overlap one another. And what's interesting, you can actually match the tree rings of the trees at the top to the ones at the bottom. And they match, showing you that they grow at the same period of time. And one in every few hundred or so of them is actually found upside down. So obviously, these trees were not growing in place. So how do we get something forming like that? This was a mystery for many years until Mount St. Helens blew its site. See, when it blew its site, the explosive force caused it to blow millions of trees into a nearby lake. And this is Spirit Lake near Mount St. Helens. You see all the trees floating there? Because of the explosive force, they're blown off the ground. Many of them do not have leaves. Many of them do not have roots. They just float on the water surface. And they begin to rub against one another. And you see, after a few weeks, the, the bark will fall to the bottom to form a low-grade coal in a short period of time. 
as they begin to flow on the water surface, within a few months, the root end would begin to get waterlogged. And so the root end would, would sink and begin to float in a vertical position. When the whole thing becomes completely saturated, it sinks to the bottom and looks exactly like a forest, like what you see here. In fact, this is a picture. You see now all the trees in Spirit Lake, they're all floating in the vertical position. And the scientists who went in the water to, to, to record these things on video say it was dangerous because when he was underwater, some of these trees were starting to fall to the bottom. So how do we get petrified flowers forming? This is a lake, a tiny volcano. But some of these formations out there, they are massive. You can't explain from a lake just like that. And it begins to look like a forest. But like I say, obviously these things were not growing in place. So what do circular geologists say? So here you have a very well-known circular geologist, he's an evolutionist, by the way, but he says this, if one estimates the total thickness of the British coal, measures as about 1,000 meters, that's 3,000 feet, okay? We cannot escape the conclusion that sedimentation was at times very rapid indeed. 3,000 feet thick of sedimentation with all these overlapping tree trunks running through it. If the rock layers form quick, if the tree trunks were laid down quickly, that means the rock layers were formed in an equally short period of time. 3,000 feet of sedimentation. What kind of a local flood would give you something like that? They're talking about a worldwide flood. Okay? You can't explain this with local flood. It doesn't work. So what does the Bible say about creation? The Bible says God created the world in six days, about 6,000 years ago. So, like I say, people say, why can't we say uh, a day is as a thousand years? We've already addressed that earlier on. But if a day is a thousand years, you're still stuck with 6,000 years. Where do you get your idea of millions of years from? It's not from the Bible. If you stretch each day to a billion years, you're in real serious trouble. Why do I say that? See, the Bible says God created light on the first day. Let there be light, there was light. So, rotating earth, evening and morning, one day. But what was created on the third day? Plants. What was created on the fourth day? The sun, moon, and stars. So light was created on the first day, but the actual sun, moon, and stars that we see today were only created on the fourth day. You follow with me? Each day, evening, and morning, one day. 12 hours dark, 12 hours light. 12 hours dark to 12 hours light. It's like our evening and morning cycle today. Not an issue. But if you have each day a billion years, now your plants are going for billions of years without the sun, moon, and stars. You end up in a position that's neither compatible with the Bible nor compatible with evolution. So why would you want to do something like that? It's so much easier just to believe what the Bible says in the very first verse. This is just one example of how the order of creation contradicts the evolutionary picture, Big Bang and all that. Turns out if you look at the little details, the order of creation contradicts circular explanation in at least 24 different places. You cannot reconcile millions of years into the Bible. It doesn't work. The Bible is clear God made creation in six days. He created man and creatures on the sixth day of creation. There was a real garden of Eden, a real Adam and Eve who fell into sin. And when they sinned, they brought sin, death and suffering into this world. But the Bible doesn't stop at creation week. The Bible gives us a genealogy from the first man, Adam, all the way to the last Adam, Jesus Christ. See, the reason why Jesus had to die a physical death on the cross was because the first man, Adam, brought sin, death, and suffering to this world. So Jesus Christ, our blood relative, going all the way back to Adam, 
can die on the cross as our kinsman redeemer to pay the penalty for our sins. If you want to understand the gospel for why Jesus had to die on the cross, we need to understand what happened to the very first Adam who brought sin, death, and suffering into this world. But the Bible doesn't just stop at creation week with a genealogy. The Bible gives us a genealogy with numbers. So these little numbers, you may not be able to see it from the back, but this Adam, you see this number is 130 years old. And so this is a timeline. It says Adam was 130 years old when he had Seth. Seth was so and so when he had his next in line and so on. When you have a genealogy with numbers, you cannot have any gaps in between. This is a watertight chronology. So we know from Adam all the way to Noah, all the way to Abraham, all the way to Joseph. We know how long that is. We know when was Exodus. We know when was exile. We know when Jesus died on the cross. It's just a matter of adding those numbers up. And we have a watertight chronology. The Bible requires you to believe that from Adam to this present day, it's only around 6,000 years. You cannot put millions of years in the Bible. The Bible itself doesn't allow you to do that. But can you put millions of years before Adam? No, that doesn't work. Why do I say that? Try to follow along with me, but if you get this, this will be key for you. You see, if you believe that the, in the Big Bang, right? So you believe the universe is 13.7 billion years. So draw a timeline, 13.7 billion years. According to evolution, Homo erectus, which by the way is human, only arose 2.8 million years ago. Homo sapiens arose um, 300,000 years ago. They used to say 200,000 years, now they extend that to 300,000 years. But same picture, draw a timeline, 13.7 billion years. If Homo erectus, which is humans, came in 2.8 million years ago from Ethiopia, according to the evolutionary timeline, man came in at the very end of this timeline. Do you follow with me? If God created the world 6,000 years ago, he created Adam and Eve on the sixth day, then Adam and Eve would be at the very beginning of this timeline. Two very different timelines. So who is right? In the Mark passage, when Jesus was teaching about marriage, do you remember what did he say? He said this, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus teaches that the earth is young. See, the moment he tried to put millions of years before Adam, Adam goes to the very end of this timeline. But Jesus is clear, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. My question to you is this, do you believe Jesus? Do you believe Jesus? Do you see why this is such an important issue now? Jesus, when he was speaking to Nicodemus, he said this, but this doesn't just apply to Nicodemus. It really applies to everything else that Jesus teach. Jesus says this, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Okay, it boils down to the authority of God's word. Jesus said that the earth is young. If he got it wrong there, why trust what he has to say in the rest of the gospel? So what's the most famous verse in the Bible? John 3, 16, right? A lot of you have that in your mind, memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The gospel, right? Where is John 3.16 found? Just four verses after this. If you cannot believe what Jesus teaches, why believe what he has to say about the gospel itself? 1 Corinthians 15. People say, you know, creation is controversial. So I don't want to talk about that. I just want to preach the gospel. 
I mean, doesn't it say that didn't the Apostle Paul say that the gospel is of first importance? Absolutely, he does that. We have to, we have to be gospel-centered. But where does he say that? 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul preached the gospel. How does he preach the gospel? Thus, it is it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. To preach the gospel, the Apostle Paul had to go back to the Garden of Eden, talk about how sin, death, and suffering came into the first man, Adam. Therefore, Jesus had to die a physical death as the last Adam on the cross to redeem us. Notice what it says. It doesn't say first Adam. It says first man, Adam. See, Adam was not one of 10,000 hominids that evolved out of Africa the way the evolutionary biology teach. Adam was the first man, a special creation that got created out of the ground, of the dust, and then breathed his breath into him so they came to life. See, where do we get this idea of millions of years from? Is it from the Bible? No. It's an outside idea that has been imposed upon the Bible. And the millions of years is really an interpretation of the rock layers. And in those rock layers, we find fossils, things that was once alive but now dead. In the fossil record, we see things like cancer, arthritis, broken bones, bite marks. That's not good. Here we see a, a dinosaur tooth, T-Rex tooth, that is stuck in the tailbone of a hadrosaur. That's a W dinosaur. In fact, in this case, we know that the dinosaur actually survived the attack because this tooth was stuck in between two of its joints in its tailbone, and the bone healed around that, fusing two of its joints together. Can you imagine how much pain this dinosaur must have experienced walking around with a tooth in his tail, fusing his bones together, before he died many months later? That should tell you something. The fossil record is not a record of millions of years. It's mainly a record of an event that takes place after sin had already entered the world. And what's that? The worldwide flood. And the fossil record is mainly a record of the worldwide flood. It's no longer a record of millions of years. Your millions of years just went out of the window. In the fossil record, we see disease, osteoarthritis. That's not good. That's, that's evidence that this is a record of the curse that's already entered the world. And what, what were dinosaurs, what were these creatures eating at the beginning? Were they eating one another? No. The Bible is very clear when God created all creatures at the very beginning, before sin entered the world, He gave them green plants to eat. There was no death, no disease, no suffering. And God only, they only began to eat one another after sin had entered the world. And God only gave Noah the permission it made after the flood. But from the beginning of time, before sin entered the world, there was no death at all. But if you believe in, in evolution, in fact, if you don't even believe, if you say, I reject evolution, but I believe in millions of years, you're really saying that millions of years of death, disease, and suffering preceded man. If you believe in evolution, death is actually a good thing because death and struggle for life is what leads to the progress of man. So why are you complaining about evil if you believe in evolution? So remember, the millions of years is an interpretation of the rock layers that, contain million, that contains millions of fossils, evidence of disease, suffering, pain. So really, if you try to put millions of, years, millions of years before Adam, this is what you're really saying. God saw all he had created at the end of day six, and it was very good. And then he placed Adam and Eve on a pile of millions of years of death, disease, and suffering. Is that very good? Do you see how 
this undermines the question of the goodness of God. What else do we see in the fossil record? The fossil record, we see human bones that according to evolution dates back, like I say, even Homo sapiens 300,000 years ago, Homo erectus 2.8 million years ago, more than the 6,000 years limit given in the Bible. So are you now going to say that there's human death before the first man even existed? In the fossil record, we see fossil thorns and thistles. Yet in Genesis, it's very clear, thorns and thistles came about as a result of the fall. So this should tell you very clearly, the fossil record is a record of an event that took place after sin had entered the world. Your millions of years just disappear the moment you understand that. So like I say, if you believe in millions of years, you believe that death and disease have to occur for millions of years before human beings even existed. But the Bible is very clear. Man's action brought death into this world. So let's get back to the famous passage on the gospel, right? What else did Apostle Paul say? In preaching the gospel, he says this, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is not part of original creation. It's an intruder. And death itself, because of what Jesus did on the cross, one day death itself will be destroyed. And those who believe in him will rise up with Christ together to reign with him for all eternity. One of the big questions we get, if God's a God of love, why is there so much death and suffering? I believe Christianity is the only one that can answer this question. Why? You see, if you believe in evolution, like I say, then death is a good thing. So why are you complaining? If you believe in Islam, you believe Allah created cattle for food. That's death from the beginning. If you believe Hinduism, you believe in Buddhism, you believe in reincarnation. That's the cycle of life and death from the very beginning. See, Christianity is unique because in Christianity, death is not part of just original creation. It came as an intruder, an enemy because of sin. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, one day death itself will be destroyed. Those who believe in him, one day there'll be no more tears, no more disease, no more suffering. We reign with Christ forever. You want an answer to the problem of evil? Look to the gospel. And the gospel brings you all the way back to what happened in the book of Genesis. See, many well, many Christians, they try to put all kinds of explanations for how we can fit millions of years into the Bible. These are just some of the views. And I don't have time to go through every single one of them. But they all share one thing in common. They all try to put millions of years into the Bible. And the moment you do that, you always put death before the fall. It doesn't work. You undermine the very foundation upon which the gospel stands. Here you have Frank Ziegler. He's a former president of American Atheists. And I want you to notice what he said in this, in this debate. He said the most devastating thing, though, that biology did to Christianity was the discovery of biological evolution. Now that we know Adam and Eve never were real people, the central myth of Christianity is destroyed. If there never was an Adam and Eve, there never was an original sin. If there never was an original sin, there's no need of salvation. If there's no need of salvation, there's no need of a saviour. And I submit that puts Jesus, historical or otherwise, into the ranks of the unemployed. I think that evolution is absolutely the death now of Christianity. This atheist, he understands the foundation of the gospel better than many professing Christians. 
See, at the end of the day, yes, we want to be gospel-centered. But I turn to churches, I say, they say they're gospel-centered. I turn to them, I say, how can you be gospel-centered if you have already undermined the very foundation upon which the gospel stands? See, at the end of the day, the reason for the cross goes back to what happened in the Garden of Eden. So at the end of the day, it boils down to this question, doesn't it? What is your authority? Is it the Word of God? If it is the Word of God, then let us train ourselves to start with God's Word and use that as a worldview to look at the signs all around us. And friends, when you train yourself to do that, everything begins to make much more sense. Jesus said this, Oops. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Do you see what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is taking his authority on the inerrancy and infallibility of the books of Moses. Who wrote the first five books of the Bible? Moses. If there are mystics in Genesis, what are you going to do with Jesus? Do you see why this is so important here? Creation is not the gospel, but it is a gospel issue because it's the foundation upon which the gospel stands. So let's get back to what we said earlier today. We showed that studies find that the main reason that people abandon their Christian, uh, Christian upbringing is unanswered intellectual questions. And we showed that the vast majority of this revolve around this whole issue of creation and evolution because it boils down to the authority of God's word. We saw that two in three kids who grew up in church, if they're not taught to defend the faith, they're going to leave the church never to return. And this figure doesn't happen to those who are trained to defend the faith. See, friends, if I have three kids and two of them are going to leave the faith because of this very issue, and I do not do anything to equip them, to strengthen their faith. Is that a side issue? I think that that's one of the most important things we can do as parents. Make the commitment and say, yes, I will train my kids to be able to defend the faith so that this statistic, that will not happen to my family. So let's get back to our two friends. What about millions of years? What about fossils? What about dinosaurs? Imagine now Johnny. Johnny has the answers. Johnny said, hey, come, let me show you from the Bible. Do you think his witnessing will be far more effective? Yes. But not only that, he will not be stumbled by those very same questions. You see, friends, how many of us know that there's a spiritual battle out there? A battle for souls. And we show that a lot of it revolves around this whole issue of worldviews, evolution versus the Bible, because it boils down to the authority of God's word. So I hope you do not mind me being a little bit practical here. But if you came in here, you see the book tables there, you see the fossils? Why do you think we bring those books here? See, before I joined Creation Ministries, I used to think that the main way that Creation Ministries make our money is by selling books. But that's not the main way we fund our ministry. We are mainly donor-supported. See, every two weeks, I'll be flying somewhere. So just last week, I was in Kansas, for example. So when we fly, we have to ship a whole pallet of books. And whatever doesn't sell, we ship it back. That costs us money. So why do we do that? Because like I said earlier on, this is the only way that you guys are going to be equipped to defend the faith. This year, every time I'm able to, I will go to a public library anywhere in the States. Like I said, I travel every two weeks. 
And every time I'm able to go to the library, the first thing I try to do is I try to look for books that talk about creation. So this entire year, do you know how many libraries I found with books on creation? Zero. I did not find any. There may be one or two out there that I'm not aware of, but I did not see a single one. Okay, maybe I found a few, a few libraries that have one or two books about intelligent design, but nothing about the age of the earth, nothing about what the Bible says about creation and things like that. So how are our kids going to be able to defend their faith? They go to movies, they go to school, they go to libraries. They don't get these resources. And that's why we bring the resources here today. So our office is in Georgia, and there we have about 700 resources. We just bring down the best ones. And people say, there's still too many. Where should I start? And so I always say the first thing you should consider is Creation Magazine, because we actually have more testimonies of life being changed people coming to the faith through this one magazine than any other magazines that we have, any other resource that we have. Why? I think maybe because it's a glossy magazine. It's attractive, right? So people, there's no advertising in there. And by the way, we do that on purpose because we want this to be focused on evangelism and equipping, and we do not have any advertising in there. So this is something you can take. It's family magazine. It's easy to understand. It's glossy. Read it. When you're done, use it to reach out to your kids, to your family and friends. So what's in there? So this is something from a past issue of Creation Magazine that we have. And I love dinosaurs. I have a whole talk on dinosaurs that I'm not doing today, but here's a, something that we cover in our resources on the website and the magazine. So here's a T-Rex bone. So this T-Rex bone was found in 2005 by Dr. Mary Schweitzer. So she's an evolutionist. And of course, the bone is really big. So she brought it to the lab, they broke it open, and she began to find what looks like red blood cells. And then she began to dissolve away the minerals, and what was left the, the original biomolecules, the dinosaur biomolecules, soft tissue that's still there. By the way, when I say soft tissue, I'm talking about original biomolecules like protein and DNA and things like that. So this is what she says. After she dissolved the minerals, what was left behind? Flexible and resilient when stretched, returned to its original shape. In the bottom right, you see the dinosaur red blood cells from T-Rex. And the top, you see that? That's the soft tissue there, you see that? Looks like beef jerky, doesn't it? And this is Mary Schweitzer on 60 Minutes. I want you to notice what she says. Okay, let's see if we can get this running. What happened next happened by mistake. Mary put some fragments of the bone in acid to dissolve away the outermost layer of mineral. But the acid worked too fast and all the mineral dissolved away. Being a fossil, there should have been nothing left. But there was, and it was elastic, like living tissue. This is the piece. <gasps> No. She showed us video she took under the microscope. That's really what happened? Yes. That's the dinosaur yeah. bone? Without mineral now. That's what was left. It looked like the soft tissue she would have expected to find if it had been modern bone. This was impossible. This bone was 68 million years old. So you see this and you think, what? You say, I didn't you want say, to tell anybody. <laughs> you'd be ridiculed, yes. right? And so I, I said to my technician, okay, do it again, I don't believe it. And yet, in sample after sample, they were there. Things that looked suspiciously like flexible, transparent blood vessels. She finally mustered the courage to tell Jack. She said she dissolved the bone away and there were blood vessels. And, you know, I was like, shocked. I mean, How could that be? How could that be? That's right. The things Mary was finding inside dinosaur bones... Look at that blood vessels, and even what seem to be intact cells pose a radical challenge to the existing rules of science. 
that organic material can't possibly survive even a million years, let alone 68 million. Do you hear the irony in the last sentence? So instead of questioning the millions of years, they question the science. Mary Schweitzer, remember she's an evolutionist, she said this, when you think about it, the loss of chemistry and biology and everything else that we know, say it should be gone. It should be degraded completely. You know, skeptics come along and say, oh, you creationists, you cannot explain the science. You say, God must have done it. You have a God of the gaps. Ever heard about that? It's actually the other way around. What we know from science tells us these things cannot be that old. I have news for you. If you want to insist that these bones are millions of years old, you're being unscientific. This is the evolutionist evolution of the gaps. You see, it's easy to go into a lab to test how long different proteins take to break down under different conditions. See, they begin to find not just um, soft tissue in one or two examples of red blood cells, but they even begin to find protein, collagen. And collagen is a stable protein. But they even find delicate proteins like elastin and laminin in what they claim was a bone 80 million years old. And later on, they claim to find collagen in a dinosaur bone that using the evolutionary dates, 195 million years old. Yet it's easy to go into a lab to test the maximum um, theoretical limit for how long collagen can break down. And science tells us, see, even if you freeze it down, the loss of thermodynamics will still, break, will still cause the chemical bonds to break down over time. And according to this paper, it tells us that the maximum possible lifespan of collagen 300,000 years to 900,000 years max, and then it'll be all gone. By the way, I think this is too generous, all right? But this is the evolutionary numbers that they publish in their circular papers. So we all just use the numbers. 300,000 to 900,000 years max, and it'll be all gone. And yet you claim to find collagen in bones that are 195 million years old? It doesn't work. How can we find that in 195 million year old bone? You see, collagen, dinosaurs did not live in freezing liquid nitrogen, right? They live in climates like ours. In 15,000 years, all of that would be gone. This is good science. So if we look at the scientific literature, circular papers, like top journals like Nature, Plus One, and all that, how many examples of dinosaur soft tissue, by the way, original biomolecules, do we find in the fossil record? Circular papers? 59 documented cases of organic dinosaur biomaterials. And we don't just look at, uh, by the way, spending at least 31 different scientific journals. If we don't just look at dinosaurs, we look at extinct ma uh, marine mammals, extinct birds, look at what they call fossilized bacterial layers, 121 cases of so-called ancient biomaterials. So I don't believe in the millions of years. But if you use the millions of years, the evolutionary numbers, what do you think is a record or holder? for the oldest sample, 2.5 billion years. And you still find original biomaterial there. Friends, you have to really deny the science if you believe that. See, the evolution believes that the further down you go down the fossil record, the further back in time you're going. Go all the way down to some of the first life in the evolutionary paradigm. And you still find original organic molecules there. It's a huge problem for them. But the fossil record is mainly a record of a worldwide flood about 4,500 years ago. The Earth is only 6,000 years. It's not a surprise that we find these things out there. So we have that in Creation Magazine. 
Take a chart like that, go to your kids and say, hey, look, God's word makes much more sense. So if you're interested in this, it's a subscription. Like I said, it's a quarterly magazine. But you subscribe for it today. And by the way, the free gifts are only available at our events, not through the website. Subscribe to one subscription and take the first issue today. We'll mail the rest to you. When you get to the office, we'll send you an email link. You can download a digital version of this magazine as well to share with up to five people. Share it to your kids, share it to your grandparents. Use that stepping stone to share the gospel with them. And that magazine that you have, when you're done with it, don't leave it at home. Use that to reach out to friends. Leave it at the doctor's office so that you can use that to share the word out there. It's a quarterly magazine, so in between those months, we have monthly periodicals and updates to update you the latest news. So again, that's for one-year subscription. Um, one year subs- oops, jump again. For your one-year subscription, you get the magazine, the first issue, we mail the rest to you, and you're going to get the digital version. The digital version used to be $19 on its own. For two years, you get those two things, you throw in a third DVD that used to be $19, this is Darwin's documentary. So we take you down Charles Darwin's trip to the Galapagos Islands. And we ask this question. If Charles Darwin was alive today, would he be a creationist or evolutionist? We deal with natural selection, mutations, speciation, and things like that. And the fourth one, we just be a $10 DVD, a four-hour project. So this one is the one that you can hear students give the reasons in their own words for why they left the church. And the second half of the DVD, you go through the objections one by one, answering those questions. So those four items for a one-year subscription, for two-year subscription. So if you're interested in that, this is what the form looks like. Just fill in your name and your details. Bring it to the book tables. Pay for it today. We we'll give you the free gifts. So volunteers, if you want, you can hand out the sign-up sheets. As you're doing that, let me cover a few other things. So after the Creation magazine, you might want to consider this book. This is a Creation Answers book. Top 60 questions on creation and evolution in one volume, in 20 chapters. So what about dinosaurs? I didn't get to do it here. That's chapter 19 in there. What about distant starlight? How did the animals get to Australia? What about continental drift? What about the ice age? Right? And things like that. What about radiometric dating, carbon-14, all that? All in this one volume alone. The second one, this with high school evolution, whale evolution, bird evolution, and so on. And the third one's a DVD that covers a talk somewhat similar to what you hear this morning. If you're interested in a lot of the flood fossils, don't forget to check out a fossil display for yourself. Touch it for yourself, look at that. We have that in this book here, Die Dragon's Flood Fossils. Of course, for kids upper elementary and above, this is a, a resource that we produce to be able to make complicated um, concepts easy to understand. This is designed for upper elementary and above. And above. But adults tell me that they learn more from this book than from you know, books that are written for adults because it's easy to understand. So there's geology, the slides that you see, a lot of the cartoons are from this book, as well as this one, Exploring Dinosaurs. About two months ago, we released one of our top, uh, our, our biggest book on dinosaurs, Titans. This is by Dr. Jonathan Safati and me, our most comprehensive book. This is for high school and above. If you love dinosaurs like me, this is something you want to check out. Do feathered dinosaurs exist? Two chapters in there and things like that. We address, look at the evidence and things like that. What's the best DVD? In my opinion, this is the best one of all times. We won two movie awards for that. Best evidence against evolution in one volume. Um, highly recommended for high school and above. 15 PhD scientists. Of course, there's a book that goes into more detail as well. And if you like Bible commentaries, I believe I've read almost all the major commentaries on Genesis out there. By far, this is my favorite. Okay? Chapter one to chap- uh, Genesis 1 to Genesis 11. 
just under 800 pages. Science, theology, church history, all in one. But what I really like about this is the theological discussions in this commentary. See, our scientists really like this so much that we spent two years going through this commentary and we take out the best parts from this commentary and we turn that into 12 45-minute teaching session that takes you through that commentary. And what you're seeing here, each one 45 minutes long, okay, this is designed to be used at a Sunday school in church or even homeschooling if that's something you do, to take you through that commentary in an easy-to-understand manner. You can download study guides and questions as well. But again, before I look at all that, friends, like I say, Creation Magazine, that's me and my daughter in our home in Georgia, because we have more life being changed from this one magazine than any other resource we produce. See, friends, there are answers to all these questions that we have here. I know I mentioned a lot of information here today. Can I be honest with you? I don't expect you to remember everything. So why, why present so many things then? Because my point here today is not to teach you. My point here today is to show you that the answers are out there. There are answers. And if you forget everything, that's fine. But you need to make a commitment and say, yes, I know the answers are out there. I'm going to commit myself, to train myself, so I can reach my friends and my families. See, this is a wonderful time to be a Christian. But many people only hear one side of the story. A friend heard a message like this. He got very passionate and he wrote in to us. He says this, how can we reach a campus of 20,000 people who have a negative view of God, religion, God and Christianity? You see me here on a Sunday, one, two hours, I cannot do that. But do you know who can? Every single one of you. If we all made a commitment, say yes, I will train myself to equip myself with all these answers so that I can make a difference in the life of my friends, my families, my church. We can reach the world for Christ. It's not about me, it's not about creation ministry, it's about you and your families and your church. It's about the kingdom of God. So like I said earlier on, if you forget everything I said here today, by the way, I'll be at the back answering questions, check out the fossil for yourself. If you forget everything I said today, that's fine. Just make the commitment to obey this commandment in the Bible. Train yourself to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Thank you.